We have a few scripture passages this morning, one that I'm uh, deciding to include that I did not uh, have placed in the bulletin, but uh, we'll read them in order. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13, can be found in your pew Bible on page 1,847. It's a well-known chapter. This is what Paul says to Timothy concerning the way in which the church should be ordered. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Flipping over to Titus chapter 1, can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1,857. Paul gives a similar instructions to Titus in Crete, saying this, starting in verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And I also desire to read for you this morning 1 Peter chapter 5. It can be found in your pew Bibles on Page 1,892. The first four verses of chapter 5. Peter's instruction to the churches reading his letter. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, 
not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Thus far, the teaching of God's holy word. May he bless us to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Over the last few weeks in which you've had me preaching, um, barring last week with Dr. Naderhood, I have been in the morning going through a series on biblical manhood and womanhood. We began that series by talking about Genesis, going back to the beginning, back to the basics, and rooting the distinction and roles between the differences in nature between men and women in creation as a created reality, as something that God said was very good before the fall into sin in Genesis 3. We talked about how sin has distorted this. Sin has caused tension to be between the the genders, male and female, and has created a power struggle where before there was not a power struggle. So then the next few weeks I spent speaking to men, telling them what the scriptures say about what biblical manhood is, distinguishing it from the cultural stereotypes that we see in our day and age, saying, men, this is the calling you have to be Christ, to reflect Christ, to sacrifice yourself, that boys take, men give, that men are sacrificial, that men love, and that's a challenge because of our sinfulness. Our sinfulness, which wishes to rule over harshly, to sit back passively. And then we spoke to women and what women are called to and the challenges that they face, comparison, comparing each other with one another, perfectionism, and and how women are particularly uniquely gifted to be nurturing and encouraging. But when sin takes a hold of our heart and those desires become twisted and distorted, then that same strength can be something that is used for death and destruction, for putting down, for um, using our words to be harmful and to hurt and to manipulate. So uh, women also are called to the glorious, beautiful reflection of the church and to submit themselves uh, intelligently to their husbands and to the men in their lives in appropriate ways. And this is something that is beautiful. This is something that women would not buck against if men were doing what men were called to do, right? And particularly, I focused these sermons more on what does that look like in the home? What does that look like for husbands and for wives? Um, because the scriptures speak very clearly about those roles, about the beauty of that, about the wonder of that, about the way that that is, uh, that is the way God created us, and it's for flourishing, and it's for beauty, and, and it's for the, the idea that if somebody out there was against that, and they said, that's so wrong, that's patriarchal, but they came to your house, and they, say, they saw the way you treated your wife, and they saw the way you loved your children, and they saw the way that your wife was, was comforted, and your wife said, he always speaks encouragingly to me, and I love his leadership, and I love being under his leadership, they would say, I'm sorry. I thought that it was, sounded horrible, but... I see now, that's what I want. That's beautiful, that's glorious. 
But the more controversial topic, I think, is maybe not so much how that looks like in the home, how complementary roles between men and women look in the home. The more controversial topic is what that looks like in the church. How does complementarianism work itself out in the local church? The idea that God created men and women equal in their essential dignity and human personhood, equal in the benefits they receive in Christ through salvation, but different and complementary in their roles. What does that look like in the church? That's what we want to talk about today, beginning with men in the church. And the theme this morning is male leadership in the home is spiritually represented in the household of God. And I want to, uh, I want to clarify things and I want to make sure that we understand what I'm saying here uh, today. The male leadership in the home is spiritually represented in the household of God. And these are the three things I want to do. I want to go back to the beginning again. And I want to look at Genesis. I want to, I want to bring up a few things about how this story in Genesis between Adam and Eve actually speaks to um, the way our church is today. And then we're going to look at some Old, Old Testament examples. How does this work out through the covenant people of God in the Old Testament? We might talk about uh, offices like the priesthood and prophets, so on and so forth, kings. And then we're going to end with looking at the New Testament example, which are the scriptures we read first, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll bring, uh, we'll bring some clarification to those scripture passages and then uh, wrap up the sermon. So let's go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3 tell us about man being created, placed in the garden, to rule in the garden, to have dominion over the garden, to work the garden, to cultivate the garden, and then uh, the woman being created as a helper suitable for, uh, for Adam in this task, in this task. And we discussed what this means. This is talking about headship, uh, male headship, how that, how that works out is Adam is tasked to this role of, of nurturing the garden, mending the garden, taking care of the garden, protecting the garden from outsiders that should not come in, like the serpent. And Adam is functioning, well, you could say, in the role of prophet, priest, and king in this garden, the Garden of Eden. And then the woman that's created for him is the perfect companion to allow Adam to accomplish his role. The reason why it's not good for a man to be alone is because God purposely created men in a way, in such a way in which they would not be able to complete the created, the creation order, the creation mandate without a companion, without woman, without Eve. Eve is necessary. Eve is a helpmate suitable for him. But I want us to think a little bit deeper about this. Because we here at Cottage Grove hold to a, a type of 
theology, a type of looking at the scriptures that we believe is biblical called covenant theology. And if you look throughout all the writings of covenant theologians through the years, they will look at this Genesis scene, Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve called to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with image bearers. The cultural mandate, right? And they would look at this and they would say, that's when the church began. You see, Adam and Eve, that's the first church. That's the first church. Because God has always had his people. Old Testament, New Testament, he's always had his people, has he not? And so when we look at the garden... And we see Adam serving, functioning in the role of prophet, priest, and king. We see that Adam is, is meant to protect, is meant to. And we even believe that if Adam, would have, if Adam would have gone through the probationary period without having fallen, without stumbling, but he would have entered into a state of glory. He would have taken of the tree of life in such a way that he would not be able to sin. But we do know he fell, and we do know that the second Adam, Christ, is going to come and be the perfect substitute for us by keeping that covenant of works which Adam broke. But in this garden, the church began. And in this tiny little church, Adam and Eve, serving and functioning in a way that we could not recreate today, so I am not saying that every little home is its own little church, although we can kind of use that as an analogy, right? Here, Adam is serving spiritually as the head of the church. Can we see that? If we see that, then I believe it's easier for us to understand how redemptive history flows out from that. How redemptive history flows out from that and how that looks like in the covenant community. So let's look at the Old Testament example. I don't have particular passages in mind for you, but I want to paint a bit of a picture, a quick historical narrative. So we have Abraham, right? God makes a covenant with Abraham. We call this the covenant of grace. And Abraham is told that all the nations will be blessed through him. And from Abraham comes Israel and comes the 12 tribes and comes the people of God. And as this people of God, Israel, develops, we see more complexity to its culture and to the, the way in which Yahweh is worshipped in this uh, nation. But as that complexity grows... What we see is that spiritual leaders of this covenant community are men. Don't act like I'm overlooking those moments in the Old Testament which we see female leadership like Deborah the prophet, like others who are mentioned who are prophetesses, um, but... We do not make the exception the standard. We look to the norm and we say, why isn't 
that when God creates a priesthood which will serve in the tabernacle, in the sacrifices of animals, in the worship of Yahweh that he calls the tribe of Levi and those who serve as priests are men. And remember, this is not because men are superior. This is because men are created uniquely for functioning in this role. It does not make them better. It just makes them different. That's what we need to keep hearing because in our day and age, what we're told is that what I'm explaining to you right now is a power struggle. It's a man telling you that men should be in leadership in the church. I mean, I'm kind of biased. I'd like to keep my job. <laughs> right? But that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is the beauty of complementarianism, the beauty of God creating us equal in dignity and respect, but four different roles. Men serve in the office of priests. By and large, men serve in the office of prophet in the Old Testament. By and large, those who are ruling and reigning in Israel are men, they're kings. And in fact, any time that a woman ever usurps the throne and reigns in Israel, it is never a good thing. Because it's contrary to human flourishing in the home in the church, and in culture. Not because they aren't gifted with leadership, but because it's contrary to the way God has created things to work and to function. Let me, let me bring up something that's quite interesting. Old Testament example, we see priesthood, we see prophets, we see kings, they are men. The covenant community, the church in the Old Testament, spiritually is led by men. And then we move to the New Testament. We move to redemption in Christ. And here's where, here's where the argument is placed. The argument is placed on what Christ has accomplished. And the idea is that if Genesis 3 introduces this tension between the sexes, male and female, that when Christ comes and brings redemption through his sacrifice on the cross, through his death, burial, and resurrection, that that, that, that tension is now lost, and those things which were once distinguished, men being in leadership and women not being in leadership, is now overthrown because we are in a new creation, which means that this has gone away with. This was... By and large, the argument, the biblical argument that was given back in the 1990s, even in 2000, of our particular denomination, the Christian Reformed Church. This is 1990. Don't we believe that things have changed? That God has done a new work? That women now can serve in the office of Elder, deacon, pastor. This was the argument, and the argument was pushed upon the, rea the reality 
of redemption in Christ, salvation in Christ. Christ is making all things new. But interestingly enough, when the arguments were made, they always said, but that complementary role, men leading in the home remains, in marriage remains. And that's why I wanted to go back to Genesis for you, because I wanted you to see that the, the, uh, the paradigm for marriage is Adam and Eve, but it's also the paradigm for the church. It's also the image for the church. So it's actually contradictory to say that, that male leadership remains in the home, but does not remain in the church. Male leadership remains in the home, but does not remain in the church. And I think the most dangerous thing that comes about through this interpretation is not necessarily the theological idea behind it, but the damage that is done to God's word in order to come to those conclusions. It's not starting with God's word. It's starting with a preconceived idea I think women should be in leadership in church and then going to God's word to justify that. I know a lot of hurt feelings came about through this huge controversy in our denomination. And I I think a lot of that is sad. Broken relationships, people who don't speak to each other anymore. I do believe that we can disagree and get along. I do believe that we can disagree and converse. I do believe that we can see each other as still brothers and sisters in Christ, although disagreeing on a very important issue. And I also think that it's very sad that this conversation forced upon us by much of the winds of change in our culture and our society that are still happening today. In fact, this past week, a statement was released on the social, uh, social justice issue, which speaks about men and women's roles, about the issues of homosexuality. All these things are connected, and I hope that you're seeing that. I do believe that it's sad that all that was discussed was the negative No, you can't be. No, women can't be in leadership. Women can't. Rather than speaking about what women can do, what they are called and gifted to do, always saying, no, you can't do this. We don't want you to do this. We don't want you to do this. Looking upon the women in our church and assessing their giftings and their callings by God and placing them in situations and, and ministries which they can express those realities. I'm going to talk about more of this next week. But, you know, we have all those kind of silly jokes. Oh, you're the pastor's wife? Great, we need another pianist and someone to work in the nursery. We, we, aren't, we aren't very creative about these things, are we? We don't think about how many ways in which women can function and serve in their gifted, spiritual gifted roles in our congregation. And I think, by and large, Cottage Grove is... It's pretty good at this. I'm very proud of the way that women serve and ways that don't belittle them. I'm kind of getting into next week, but you know, I, I sat down this week or a couple week, uh, this past couple weeks and looked through a binder that was put together on a study of Revelation for, uh, for coffee break and thought to myself, 
this is very detailed, this is very good, and this is very thought-provoking. And one of the women in our church put it together. Women in Cottage Grove are intelligent, are gifted, are a part of the body of Christ here at this church. And just because you don't get to sit up here and be the mouthpiece doesn't mean you don't mean something. I guess I'll have to change my sermon for next week, but (laughs) there'll be more on that. It does damage to the text. The hermeneutical, the interpretive principles that you have to bring to the word of God in order to come to the conclusion that women are allowed to serve in the offices of, of the church undermines the authority of Scripture. And if you want to look at any of the issues that are going on in the Christian Reformed denomination right now, it is not because we've decided that women in ordination is a legitimate position. It's because we've undermined the authority of God's Word and the sufficiency of it. Look, at me with, uh, look with me at 1 Timothy 3. I'll speak to this, uh, this text first. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, or it says a bishop, elder, same word, same meaning, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife. The husband of but one wife is pretty clear, people. It means those who are called to the office overseer, deacon, or excuse me, overseer or elder, are husbands. Women cannot be the husband of one wife. I'm sorry. So you have to relativize this passage. You have to bring it up to modern ways of viewing culture. You have to say, yeah, this is, uh, this is just not okay for our day and age. But that's what God's word says. That's what it says in the Greek. In the Greek it says, one woman man. He must be a one woman man. Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And the reason I wanted to help us see that in Genesis, that first home, that first household of God has always been in our theological, historical way of looking at things. The first church is for this reason. Verse 4, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. And verse 5, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? How can he manage the household of God if he cannot manage his own family? So, Here, Paul is saying that a trial run for someone who is being looked at for overseer or elder is that he knows how to manage his little church well. Okay, I'm using that as an analogy, not as a direct connection. He knows how to manage his little church, his home. Because if one can look upon the home the way that man rules and leads in the home spiritually, the way that he is gathering the children together and the wife together to read the scriptures, the way that he is leading in prayer, the way that he is praying for his wife and for his children, then we can say that spiritual leadership in the church would suit him because then he is overseeing the household of God, the family of God. 
brothers and sisters in Christ, covenant children. This is the household of God. And just as Adam is the head of his church, the first church, Christ is the head of this church. And we are under shepherds of the great shepherd, seeking to serve spiritually in the role of leadership as men, as he has called us to. Not harshly, but with sacrificial love. With a desire to see both brothers and sisters who are under our authority in this church to grow in godliness and holiness and in the knowledge and wisdom of Christ. That's not by taking, that's by giving. That's by pouring ourselves out for you. That's by saying that each and every member of Cottage Grove could, could always say, I know my elders want what's best for me in the Lord. They're seeking my spiritual betterment. You see how this overlaps with Ephesians 5 as well. Right? First Timothy 3 continuing. He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. There's been multiple times I've sat in a room with, with men who have gone over this passage and we've been considering men in this church who, uh, who meet these standards. And oftentimes, the weight of these words can be felt in that room. How exactly can any of us be above reproach, be temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach? We tend to look at 1 Timothy 3 when it speaks of elders and even deacons and think to ourselves, what we're looking for is the elite Christians, among us who can serve in this role. But I think one, uh, one needs to look upon 1 Timothy 3, and even if you do not feel the internal call, men to serve as elder in this church, to see 1 Timothy 3 as a description of a godly man who's seeking to live according to his calling in Christ. I would say that Paul here is not describing the uber-Christian, the super-Christian men. He here is describing the minimum. Christian men who are allowing the Holy Spirit to work in their lives, who are being discipled by other men, grow in godliness and holiness, be temperate, be self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, inviting people into your lives, being able to teach, knowing what the truth of Scripture say, not given to drunkenness, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, 
This is the minimum. This is what all men in this church should be striving for. This is not a list that we look at and say, well, I don't want to be an elder, so don't have to worry about that. Continuing, it describes function of deacons. Look also here, it says, verse 11, or uh, verse 12, a deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. So that household principle is functioning there as well. And the interpretation of husband of but one wife means husband of but one wife. Men are called to this role. Titus chapter 1, we see that uh, Paul put Titus in Crete to establish, to appoint elders in every town. And I want to clarify something here uh, in verse 6. An elder must be blameless, the husband of what but one wife. There's that standard again. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. I do not believe that this text means that your children must be believers. Uh, the, The Greek word there is pistos which is the same word that we use for faith. Um, I think a better interpretation is uh, a man whose children are faithful and not open to being wild and disobedient. It's a correlation with the passage in 1 Timothy 3, which says a man must rule his household well and his his children must not be unruly. It means that his children obey him. They're faithful to him. It does not mean that those who have children who uh, we can somehow be able to tell are not believers are disqualified from are disqualified from that office of elder. And then First Peter five, I want to I wanted to read for this very reason. First Timothy three, Titus one. These are descriptions of the offices that that Christ has put in this church. These offices that. Uh, particularly function in the role of apostles. If we needed another New Testament example, that would be it, right? Apostles were all men. Um, we, we function now uh, continuing the ministry of the apostles, continuing the work of the Great Commission as um, pastors and as elders and deacons. But First Peter 5 speaks to the way in which we should do this. It's not enough, I don't think, for me to just say, don't you see? It's supposed to be men. It's men. Because I think that's the way in which we have handled this situation in the past. Because the context in which we are in culturally has got us a little scared. It's got us on our defensive side. Aggressive side. But what about the positive expression? Okay, yes, men are to serve. But in what way are they to serve? And what better example for us men, and maybe some of you who are here in this church and who've never served men as elder or deacon who are considering the way in which God could work in your lives to serve in that way? Christ, the second Adam, the prophet, the priest, the king, We follow his example. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, 
as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. You see here the echo of Christ's words, that you are not to rule as the Gentiles rule, lording it over them, but you are to be a servant. The first shall be last, the last shall be first, right? And when the chief shepherd appears, that's the key. We're under shepherds. He's the chief shepherd. Our primary role as men in this church who serve and function in the, in the offices of, of pastor, elder, deacon, is to point you to the chief shepherd, the Psalm 23 shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. It's important that we see the different roles that we are called to, but it's important that we see the good, the beauty, and the glory in it. Not simply, yes, this means men can serve and women can't. And I hope as we've looked at the scriptures today, you've seen that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the unique ways in which you've created us, men, women, the ways in which you have called us to serve in your church, different, distinct, but neither more important, neither less important. But together, together, Show the beauty of your gospel. The gospel which tells us that your son, who is our groom, came down and died upon the cross so that he may wash his bridegroom white as snow with his blood that we may one day enter into his presence at the wedding feast of the Lamb and know that we have a Savior who loved us to the end. May we serve him in our different roles with gratitude and faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.